Blog Talk Radio. Eastern family and friends, welcome to Memories of a Great Airline, as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Kind of a long title, but it says what the show will be about. Stories about the people and friends of Eastern over the history of the airline. Your storytellers will read stories found in several Eastern publications, such as the Repartee Magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, The Wings of Man, The Wings of Many, the Silverliners Magazine for the Flight Attendants, News Wings, which started it all with Pitcairn Aviation, and many more. Stories that tell the history of the many departments of an airline, Men and women performing their duties that made Eastern Airlines the great airline it was. Pilots of the early history of the airline that were asked to fly their open cockpit biplanes into the night skies, into good weather and bad weather, fog, rain, and snow, with the most crude instruments compared with today's high-tech cockpits. Roads, railroad tracks, and the early radio ranges filled with static were their only means of navigation. Landing at night with only the glow of flare pots put out earlier by ground personnel was a challenge that modern-day airmen cannot fathom with their full automatic landing systems. We owe much to these heroes of aviation progress. Maintenance performed by the early mechanics dealt with fabric airplanes, need to be patched and engines with the complexity of the internal combustion engines, needing constant repairs day or night, broken down in pastures like fields of grass and weeds. No matter what the weather, the mechanics under the direction of Mr. Johnny Ray always came through to keep the airline in the air. Hostesses were hired once passenger airplanes came about, like the Curtis Condor and the Kingbirds. They were introduced to the traveling public. From the early hostesses, as they were originally called, to the stewardesses in the 50s and 60s, to our present flight attendants on the jumbo jets carrying several hundreds of passengers in a single airplane. These professionals are the first responders when an aircraft has an emergency and to protect their passengers that could even cost them their lives. 
from just showing up at the airfield to catch a flight to their destination to the marvels of the modern-day reservation system, which Eastern Airlines pioneered in its early development. That allows for even booking your flight and seat from the comfort of your own home today. You've got to sell seats to stay in business, in the words of our beloved president. There has to be an ass in every seat, the airline excelled in sales and marketing. These men and women gave the airline prestigious businesses, business such as the official airline of Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The airline of so many firsts, it would be hard to list here, just to mention a few. Uh, the first Boeing 727 flown by Eastern. The first wide-bodied aircraft, L-1011. The first air shuttle. The first Boeing 757. And many, many more. And finally, the stars of the show. The Eastern aircraft. From the Pitcairn Mail Wing aircraft to the jumbo jets. Like the Lockheed L-1011. The Airbus A300. The McDonnell Douglas DC-10, the Boeing 747 to the all-glass cockpit of the Boeing 757. I could go on with why this airline, Eastern Airlines, became a legend in its time. However, we think the radio broadcast that you'll be hearing will more than tell the story, so we invite you to sit back and enjoy the memories of a great airline as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will be joined by others as we introduce episodes each week. We hope you will join us on these Monday evenings at 8 p.m. East Coast time by going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T E-D-D-I-E, that's Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. And now for our first story. Is it Jack or John? I thought it would be a good idea to name my new brand of whiskey, John Daniels, but someone by the name of Jack and beat me to it. Or is it correct if I name it John Daniels and everyone will know it is really Jack Daniels? John F. Kennedy was known by his family as Jack, as do many other famous Johns that like the nickname Jack. Oh well, this next story was written by flight attendant Jill Cotton and printed in the book Wings of Many. Its title is The Captain and Jack. By Jill Cotton. As a 20-year-old with very little seniority, flying a bid trip out of Miami, one had to expect at least one portion of the trip sequence would be between New York and Miami. In this case, the very first leg of the flight was the first flight into LaGuardia on number 892, July 1969. Because it was the first flight of the morning into LaGuardia and not JFK, it was a Boeing 727. The trip usually was unremarkable. An early departure, no known celebrities, 
or unusual request to be expected, just your average flight. Preparing the first-class cabin and galley, the agent came aboard and told me that Captain Eddie Rickenbacker would be flying with us and that he would be sitting in first class in seat 3A. Because the hour of the morning, the flight was only booked for 12 passengers in first class, not the usual 23. The agent began to board the passengers, starting with coach passengers to get them settled in. As the boarding continued, Captain Eddie came aboard and claimed his seat. He had gone straight to his seat and was looking out the window at ramp service, doing their job of loading the plane. Approaching him, I offered him a pre-departure beverage, which he declined. As he stood up, taking off his hat to place it in the overhead, he hit his head on the PSU, passenger service unit. He kind of shook his head and said, That's one way to crack a coconut. I smiled and instantly liked this kind gentleman. As I went through the cabin asking for drink orders and offering different breakfast selections, he only had one request. Jack on the rocks. He didn't care for breakfast. I had plenty of opportunity to chat with him. We talked about my background and that my dad was a tech rep for General Motors on Allison Engines with the Air Force. I told him I wasn't a military brat, just a general one. He laughed. You grew up in aviation, he said. I flew the rest of the sequence of the trip into the Midwest and knew I was having a great trip. To my surprise, Captain Eddie was back on my next trip and sitting in 3D. I was thrilled and couldn't wait to tell my family he was flying with me again when he asked me if I would like to fly to Switzerland. I felt so honored that I had to reply that my job at Eastern was very important to me and then and that it came first. comes to us from a 2013 edition of the Repartee magazine, the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. It was in a section titled Memorable Flights. Green Bay Packers Huddle at 35,000 feet by Captain Lee Johnson. Captain uh, Johnson starts this off with a preference to Dear J.B. J.B. Holder was the editor of the magazine at the time. He said, I will tell you about a trip that I will never forget. You know, when you're not flying captain, you're always taking notes on the crew you fly with. 
I learned a couple of things on this trip from Captain Johnny Johnson. We were on the L-1011, ship number 318, and I was the engineer, and Jim Robertson was flying the right seat. Our trip was flight 81 from Atlanta to Los Angeles. On the 15th of January, 1977, we loaded up with about 175 folks and left the gate on time. A couple of hours into the flight, the flight attendant came up and told us that she had a guy that was being a nuisance in the cabin. It seems he wanted to wander around and would not stay in his seat. He was also bothering other people by picking up one person's cane and just generally being a pain in the neck. About the second time she came up to report on him, the captain said, Lee, go back there and see if you can get this man in the seat so she can serve the rest of the folks. So like a good second officer, I put on my coat so I could impress him or intimidate him, whichever worked. I found him wandering around by the right side aft door. I asked him if I could help him find a seat, and he looked around like he could not remember where he was. He was a young man about my size and maybe 180 pounds, and he never said a word. I said, let's take this seat over here, and I'll help you with your seat belt. He took one step toward the seat and then turned and shoved me back over the seat in the opposite side of the aisle. Then he took off running up front. I went after him and grabbed him by the hair of his head and flung him onto empty seats in the center section of the plane and I was on top of him. When I looked up, the flight attendant came over the center section from the left aisle and landed on top of us. The next time I looked up, you would have thought you were in the huddle of the Green Bay Packers. Six or seven men were around us and one big black man said, I'm a parole officer from Florida. Can I help you? I said, yes, you know how to hold this man and I will go and find something to strain him with. Now this guy has not said a word or made a sound up to now. And I went back to the cockpit to get some restraining straps we carried at one time. Naturally, we did not have anything but headset cords to use. I didn't think that would do, so I went back to the cabin to see how much help we had and what our next plan would be. My newfound friends had this fellow sitting in the aisle seat in the center section. One leg was in the aisle with two men holding it. One leg was in between the next row seats with one man on it. His left arm was pulled back over his seat back and one man was on that arm. His right arm was pulled around his seat and one man in the aisle was on that arm. One man was behind him and pushing his head down between his legs and another man was in the row of seats in front of him helping to hold his head down. These were big men, but every once in a while this guy would moan and shake all the folks around for a few seconds. I went back to the cockpit and Johnny said, What have we got back there? I told him and he asked what I thought we should do with him. I, I said, We are sure not doing him any good and he sure as the devil is not doing us any good. The captain told Jim to call ATC and get us a clearance to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Then told me to call the company and tell them to get us some fuel in Albuquerque. I then found the frequency for Albuquerque and by that time we had started our descent. The company came back and told us to go on to Phoenix where we had better facilities for the L-1011. I relayed this to the captain and this is when I learned how to handle the company. Johnny said, tell the company that the airplane will be in Albuquerque in just a few minutes. I relayed this to the company and got a roger. I talked to Albuquerque and told them we had an unruly passenger that we needed to leave with them. I told them not to send some lady with a 357 out to the plane because it was taking six people to restrain this guy. 
We landed and were parked away from the main gates where we were met by everyone who carried a gun in New Mexico. We had the FBI, the N New Mexico BI, the state patrol, the county sheriff, the city police, and the airport security, and who knows else. I guess I forgot to tell them he was unarmed. They put steps up to the right rear of the plane, and when the door opened, we saw an officer about 5 feet 10 inches and 200 pounds who was wearing sergeant stripes on a blue uniform. He had no neck. His head was set right on his shoulders, and he looked mean. He said, where is he? Then grabbed the fella as everyone turned loose, lifted him up off his feet, took him out the door, and flung him down the steps to some waiting suits. We then got our papers, shut the door, and were back in the air in about 30 minutes. I don't think we would have ever gotten any better service in Phoenix. I got home the next day, and my wife asked me if we had an unscheduled landing yesterday. I thought maybe the company had called her or something, but she said she had heard it on the news that an eastern plane had made an unscheduled landing somewhere. I was expecting the worst from the company and the FAA. To this day, no one has said a word. No reports, no inquiries, nothing. We found out later that this guy, Frederick Johnson, had been released from a mental home in Savannah that morning with a ticket to LAX. He changed planes in Atlanta, and that is where we got him. He had caused a little trouble with the gate agent in Atlanta, but nothing to be concerned about. So I got a little better picture on how to handle emergencies that are not in the book, and an ex excellent example of how to be captain. Since the days of the ancient Mayans, one thing hasn't changed. When Mexican people celebrate, Mexican people dance. celebration. At Summer Savings, you can vacation in Mexico this year for the same kind of money you spent last year. Call Eastern or your travel agent. It's easy to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. Is there a minister on board by Captain O.A. Fish? On the Eastern Airlines Boston-Miami flight that I was the captain, we normally follow the East Coast to Wilmington, North Carolina, then go down Atlantic Route 1, a shortcut to Miami over water. But on the morning of last January 28th, that route would have taken us 60 miles east of Cape Canaveral into the flight pattern of the space shuttle. So when I took my place at the controls of our Boeing 757, I was not surprised that we had been rerouted down the coastline. We had 135 passengers and were ready to go, but the delay in launching Challenger was delaying us too. On the intercom, I kept the passengers informed as to the reasons for the holdup. I expected some irritation, but for once, everyone seemed to understand. They were especially interested in this launching because it was to carry the first ordinary American into space, school teacher Krista McAuliffe. 
At last we took off, and for a while the flight was uneventful. Just south of Wilmington, however, I heard another pilot on our radio frequency ask, Did the spacecraft take off yet? There was a pause. Then came the air controller's answer. Yes, but it blew up one minute into flight. Stunned silence on the frequency. Then another voice broke in. Did you just say what I thought you said? Yes, I'm afraid so. My co-pilot Barney Ross and I sat, sat staring into the open space ahead of us, not speaking at first. Then the words stumbled out. No, it can't be. Not all those people. My thoughts turned to our passengers. How would the news affect them? Boston is a regional airport from the Northeast. There might be friends or relatives of Krista McAuliffe on this plane. I couldn't make an announcement like that cold over the PA system. But I had passengers back there who deserved to know. If I had been home, I would have prayed with friends and fellow church members. But there in my own community, we could have reached out to God for comfort and assurance. But this was a Boeing 757 filled with people I'd never seen before. Should I tell them or wait until we landed? Barney and Mary Pipe, the senior flight attendant, thought I should wait. While I was still trying to decide, I was handed a note from a passenger. He was writing a letter to Eastern Management complimenting our crew on the flight. He said he had particularly liked the way I had kept passengers informed about the shuttle and the reasons for the delay. Barney tapped me on the shoulder. I looked up from the note, my eyes following his gaze out the cockpit window. There was a large, white vapor cloud standing starkly alone. Is there a minister on board? I asked Mary Pipe. She checked the passenger list. Yes, the Reverend J.D. Gother. A Jesuit priest was seated near the rear. Call him aside, I told her. Tell him the news and ask if he would be willing to provide spiritual assistance. Pipe came back and said the priest had agreed. I glanced once more out the window as the ominous cloud grew nearer. Please, I said, ask him to lead us in a prayer after I make the announcement. I switched on the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, I have some very distressing news, I began. I'm sorry to have to tell you, but the spaceship Challenger has been destroyed. It exploded just after takeoff. We were over Daytona Beach. As I banked the plane, the huge cloud floated into the passenger's view. Father Gauthier began reading the 23rd Psalm over the PA system. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I shall want. Fresh and green are the pastures where he gives me repose. Near restful waters he leads me. By now we were passing over Cape Canaveral. To revive my drooping spirit... 
He guides me along the right paths. He is true to his name. If I should walk in the valley of darkness, the shadow of the cloud had fallen across the plain, blocking the sun. No evil would I fear. You are there with your crook and your staff. With these you give me comfort. You have prepared a banquet for me in the sight of my foes. My head you have anointed with oil. My cup cup is overflowing. As a cloud passed from sight, sunlight once again streamed through the windows. Surely goodness and kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. In the Lord's house shall I dwell forever and ever. Father Gauthier prayed for the astronauts, for their families. Even though I couldn't see the passengers, I knew that every head on our plane was bowed, every heart was touched. After we landed in Miami, I left the cockpit to meet the man whose prayer had helped us all. Together we watched the passengers disembark. No one seemed to hurry. People walked slowly, some still wiping their eyes, others reaching out to lift a heavy bag or help with a sleepy child. Young, old, men, women, I watched as a small sampling of mankind left the plane. Several people shook my hand. Others expressed their appreciation to Father Gauthier. It was almost as if we were leaving church after a touching service. I knew none of us would ever forget where we were that day in January when Challenger exploded. In still another time of national crisis, we had found again how much we needed one another, how much we needed and depended upon God. I knew we'd never feel closer to God than when we were part of that prayer meeting 39,000 feet high in the Florida sky. As a footnote to this story, Captain O.A. Fish, known by most eastern pilots as O.A., is the author of a beautifully inspired book, Fingerprints of God. Since retirement, he has been a speaker, a writer, and talk show host for radio and TV. He and his wife, Charlotte, are founders of a Christian camp located in Bostick, North Carolina. What a wonderful... Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. This article is from the summer 2011 edition of the Reaper Tea magazine. It asks a general question that most of us can answer yes to, which is, have we ever done anything stupid? I think I see everybody's hand go up on that. But specifically, the question here was, 
Have you ever done anything stupid in an airplane? This is an article entitled Right, No Left, written by Charlie Brown. When asked by JB if I had ever done anything stupid in an airplane, I had to laugh. Of course I have. I will not admit to all of them, but one in particular stands out as it now seems funny. Many years ago, on a beautiful sunny day, at around 5,500 feet, my late brother, Royce, and I were returning from Florida when we discovered one of our radios had gone on the blink. To better understand what I'm about to relay, you have to understand how close the two of us were. We had been partners in real estate, airplanes, boats, and even bicycles as kids. We never were at odds with anything. It always seemed as if we each knew what the other was thinking, so we worked well together without a lot of verbal communication. We were in a Cherokee 140, a nice little single-engine Piper, in which the panel radios were two King KX-170s, which meant they were interchangeable within their trays. So when it was determined that one radio was bad, all that was required was a little glance between us, and we knew it would be simple to determine if it was a problem with the radio itself or with the tray, wiring, etc. When the two of us, being impatient types and always ready to tackle a problem instantly, uh, might forget about it later, we decided to swap the radios while flying along. Why not? It helps with boredom. Now, the top radio, the bad one, was behind the yoke, but that was no problem. I would just put the plane in a steep right bank while Royce pulled the radio out of its tray. This required turning the locking screw on the radio a quarter turn with an Allen wrench. No problem. We were always prepared, both being piddlers, so we had the wrench in the side pocket. Now the fun begins. After all preliminary planning and tasks were done, we were ready. I turn the yoke hard right. Joyce pulls the radio outward, but the radio gets hung. Was it a tad wider than we realized? No, it was not. Here is where the really dumb part had come into play. I had in mind, I guess, that turning my yoke on the left to the right would give us clearance to pull the radio out, when actually it was the right yoke needing to be turned left for the clearance. So here we were in a very steep right bank with the radio stuck in a binding twist. No other option but to pull back on the yoke, way back. And what else I did with the yoke, I don't know. But somehow we finally got the darn thing out, somehow recovered the airplane, our wits, our lost altitude, and the color back to our faces. We then just continued on course and did not talk about it. But our nonverbal communication was running full speed agreeing very quickly that boredom was very much preferred to in-flight troubleshooting of this kind. Not able at the time to look outside, nor wanting to, I am sure we put that Cherokee 140 through a maneuver that never duplicated by another pilot. At least I hope not. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One time check in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. Here's a little short story that was originally written in the South Carolina Aviation News. It was later published in the Repartee magazine. 
And the article is titled, Why I Want to Be a Pilot, and it was written by Tommy Tyler, who was in the fifth grade in Beaufort, South Carolina, when he wrote this. He says, when I grow up, I want to be a pilot because it's a fun job and easy to do. That's why there are so many pilots flying around these days. Pilots don't need much school. They just have to learn to read numbers so they can read their instruments. I guess they should be able to read maps, too, so they can find their way if they get lost. Pilots should be brave so they won't get scared if it's foggy and they can't see. Or if a wing or a motor falls off, they should stay calm so they'll know what to do. Pilots have to have good eyes to see through clouds, and they can't be afraid of thunder or lightning because they are so much closer to them than we are. The salary pilots make is another thing I like. They make more money than they know what to do with. This is because most people think that plane flying is dangerous, except pilots don't because they know how easy it is. I hope I don't get airsick because if I get airsick, I couldn't be a pilot, and then I would have to go to work. Submitted by Mike O'Rourke. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in Cabin 2 just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. This story comes to us from the books The Wings of Man. It's entitled, My Tribute to Extraordinary Airmen by Francisco J. Gonzalez, Flying in the Caribbean. Growing up in San Juan, Puerto Rico, during the 1930s and 1940s was quite an adventure for me. Japan invaded China and the Italians' Abyssinia civil war in Spain. Germany declared war on much of Europe and then Pearl Harbor. Since I was a little boy, the drone of a solitary airplane's engine in the sky was music to my ears, but then everything changed. The sky was now full of warplanes. We had frequent air raid alarms with searchlights crisscrossing the dark skies above. German submarines sank some ships leaving or approaching San Juan Harbor, and some food staples became scarce in our strategically important gateway to the Caribbean. My brother, 18, became a sailor and participated in the anti-submarine campaign. Other boys in the neighborhood went off to war, and I had to stay home and read about it in Life magazine or watch movie tone news. I wanted to be one of those airmen, especially one of the carrier pilots with their yellow May West life jackets, scrambling to man Hellcats on pitching decks, dreams I later partly realized as a Marine and Naval Aviation Cadet. At Eastern, I flew with some of the last few active pilots of that era. They would never tell, but I knew who they were. I respected them. In 1964, I joined Carabair, Caribbean Atlantic Airways, the little airline with high expectations that was described in Time magazine as a gold mine in the sky. By 1970, however, it was dying, and we all tried to help it survive. On my own, with a touch of nostalgia, I admit, I went to New York and was granted an interview by a Spanish radio station seeking public support for the EAL-CBA merger. Finally, the little one joined the big one, and we kept on flying. Thank God for that. 
Once, while test flying one of our DC-9s at dawn after an engine change, we were requested to look toward El Yunque, the rainforest, and report what we saw. Both Captain Huguera and I saw two full moon-like objects stationary low on the sky next to the mountain. Suddenly they darted a short distance to the west and back, then rose vertically, fast. The same as two Pan Am pilots had reported seeing a few minutes before during takeoff. National Guard fighters were sent to investigate, but couldn't keep up with them. They vanished, but not before, in full daylight. People on the ground in different towns also saw them. Next morning, newspapers headlined the story along with the official explanation. Harmless weather balloons, they said. The story is still on the Internet. Another clear, beautiful night while operating out of San Juan, flying to the Dominican Republic, climbing through flight level 240, we felt a bump. The instrument panel on the right side went dark, and we made an emergency landing at Ramey Field, which we had just passed. While waiting for a replacement aircraft, we kept wondering how the cowling of the right engine had come off. All of the 101 passengers boarded the other aircraft, but they insisted that the same crew, us, fly them over. We complied, and upon landing at Santo Domingo, received a round of applause and were showered with blessings. Mr. George Lyell of Eastern presented the crew, Captain Castrillo, Stewardess Gloria Caro, Janet George, and Aida Ramirez, and myself, with a letter of commendation and an engraved pen. My added gratitude and admiration to all those that inspired me to fly. Names like Lindbergh, Rickenbacker, St. Expere, and many others come to mind. All, and to all those who briefly shared the blue skies with me, who, like John McGee, felt they had trod the sanctity of space and touched the face of God. But of all, above all, to those I have read about in our Keeping in Touch newspaper, Narratives of pilots from both sides who during combat being enemies by circumstance displays the highest levels of chivalry and humanity against, amidst the chaos of war. And when I pass on to my final destination as an, extra, as an ordinary airman, wherever that may be, I would like to pass by the abode of extraordinary airmen and render them my humble salute. Till then, farewell. Mr. Gonzalez was born in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico in October of 1930 and attended public schools in San Juan. He served in the U.S. Marine Corps and the U.S. Navy between 1951 and 1954 and joined Carabair in 1964. After Carabair's 1973 merger with Eastern Airlines, he continued flying until retired in 1987. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. This story comes up to us from the book, The Wings of Man. The article is called Snap Decision by Helen McLaughlin, and it tells us about a, a very famous woman in the history of Eastern. Her name was Edwina Winnie Gilbert. The first female vice president of Eastern Airlines worked up to an executive office from being a flight attendant. In 1956, I made a snap decision 
Edwina Winnie Gilbert declared with a snap of her fingers. I was tired of working a nine-to-five job as a bank teller and also being a full-time student at the University of Miami. I was driving down Northwest 36th Street in Miami when I noticed an eastern stewardess crossing the street. It flashed through my mind that being a stewardess would get me out of my rut and it would be a refreshing change of pace from the hectic life I'd been leading, trying to juggle my job and school. Winnie parked her car near Eastern's headquarters and walked into the personnel department. Several hours later, she walked out as Eastern's newest stewardess trainee. At a very young age, she had a natural spontaneity about life. Born in White Plains, New York, her parents moved often and she had to constantly adjust to new places and people. Winnie was in eight schools in one year when she was a small child. Her family moved to Miami and Winnie later graduated from Miami Edison High School. She majored in science at the University of Miami because she wanted to excel and be like Madame Curie. However, this didn't work out for Winnie, so she joined the management trainee program for the First National Bank. At the same time, she continued to take classes at the university. Her working career changed a great deal when she joined Eastern. She was correct in assuming that the job would be an interesting way to travel and to learn about the world and aviation. Winnie loved her job, but she also wanted to get married. In the 1960s, Eastern stewardesses were not permitted to be married and she quietly rebelled along with other stools. On the sly, she married Frank Gilbert and kept her job. Her husband never answered the phone in case it was Eastern's scheduling department, but it wasn't long before the constant traveling and trying to keep her marital status a secret made her life very difficult. She typed a letter of resignation, but before she could turn it in, Eastern offered, offered her promotion to instructor of stewardesses in Miami. Winnie accepted and three years later became the manager of the school. Winnie handled the management of the training school with ease. Her position as manager of the flight attendants involved her with upper management. Even though Winnie didn't have the required college degree, she knew she could handle more responsibility. In 1971, she was called into a company meeting and she thought she might be offered the directorship of in-flight training. Instead, Winnie was promoted over the current director to division vice president in flight services supervising seven eastern bases and 3,200 flight attendants. She was overwhelmed and realized it was a tremendous obligation. Winnie talked it over with her husband, Frank. The job paid $75,000 a year, and she would be the first woman VP at Eastern. In fact, the first woman VP of any U.S. airline. She accepted in her own way, Winnie was very much in favor of the women's movement and she had fought against male prejudice at the corporate level. Promoted again in 1987 to Vice President of In-Flight Services, Winnie made spontaneous decisions, directed more than 6,000 flight attendants. She managed a $295 million yearly budget to maintain Eastern's quality of in-flight service and saw to it that passengers received safe, friendly, and courteous service. Winnie tried her best to keep her employees happy. In fact, she tried a new concept to keep from furloughing and laying off flight attendants. Her program enabled senior flight attendants to take an unpaid leave of absence and let Eastern cut costs by keeping its junior flight attendants. A flight attendant was allowed up to one and a half years of maternity leave using their sick leave and then six months with no pay. 
an additional six months after the baby's birth was allowed if she elected to nurse her baby. In this way, flight attendants retained their jobs until they returned to active status. Moreover, Eastern had an employee profit sharing plan and an employee stock purchase plan. Winnie kept abreast of the problems of labor management and was there at the last in an effort to save Eastern. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. It's always fun to listen to air traffic controllers and pilots' radio, radio communications, especially when the pilot does not do what the controller has asked and the frustrations between the two develop rather quickly. Well, we found an article appearing in The Best of Repartee, a book of stories collected over 40 years. This one is titled Unusual Radio Communications and was written by the late Captain Tom Bartley. Airline pilots are always correct, proper, and circumspect in their radio communications. Now, if you believe that, I will sell you a nice bridge from Brooklyn to Manhattan for a bargain price. I think most pilots have deviated from standard radio procedures at one time or another for one reason or another. Even the late and highly esteemed Captain Joe Kelly, the epitome of proper conduct, permitted himself at least one deviation, which he told me about himself. I think it deserves to be recounted here. Joe taxied out for takeoff at Boston, cleared to the run-up block, hole for landing traffic, the weather was low, and a brand X flight was on final approach. He missed and went around. Joe continued to hole. The Brand X flight missed again and went around again. Joe called the tower and said, The next time he misses, how about a quick takeoff for us after he makes his first turnout? I think we are entitled to assume that the Brand X guy was not amused. Whether he ever got in or, or went to his alternate, I do not know. Another deviation which comes to mind at this time was not so mild and gentle. I listened in on an atrocious performance by a brand XX pilot and finally injected myself into the act with a few unfriendly words which were not well received. The brand XX flight was arriving at JFK from somewhere in the Midwest, maybe from Chicago. I was arriving from San Juan, working with approach control on VHF, when the double X guy checked in on frequency. I noted that his altitude was abnormally high for his reported position. The approach control operator issued a, him a clearance, which to me did not appear to be feasible due to his extra altitude. It did not appear feasible to the XX guy either, which he immediately announced in a 
vituperative blast that was totally uncalled for. It was no surprise immediately um, that he refused the clearance, but all he needed to say was that he couldn't get rid of that out that much altitude in that short a period of distance, time and distance. He didn't have to start a war about it. Evidently, he was already spring-loaded to the hostility position for some reason. He kept right on blasting away with both barrels, not saying anything really except in substance that the approach controller operator was incom- incompetent. Finally, I picked up the mic and said, Ah, shut up, in my best attempt at a flatbush snarl. Instantly, he roared back, you shut up. The only one of the three of us who observed proper decorum was the approach control operator. He worked both of us down to airport control tower altitude, and we both landed without further misconduct. Admittedly, I was out of order myself to get into the act as I did, but I have never felt any regret for giving that guy a well-earned verbal kick in the shins. Evidently, he wasn't having one of of his better days. Another case in which I did a little meddling comes to mind, and this one I do regret. I was tooling along at cruising altitude at about 2 a.m. one morning, on the Atlanta-Houston leg of a night coach flight from New York to San Antonio when we heard an eastern flight call our New Orleans station on company frequency. See if you can wake up the New Orleans tower on the telephone, he said. We can't raise them on tower frequency when we need landing instructions. At that time, the Alpha had a campaign going against the use of the term landing instructions. And I never thought we had much of a chance. I never thought we had much of a chance to win that one. But I did agree with the principal with the Alpha position, and it was my regular practice to play ball with the boys. Our EAL pilot said landing instructions a few more times in the conversation. Finally, I picked up the mic and said, when you get nearly to the ground, cut the gun and Pull back on the wheel. Even at this late date, I, I would retract that statement retroactively. If I could, I'd passed up an excellent chance to keep my mouth shut. Occasionally, a deviation from normal communication procedures can occur unintentionally, which is what happened to me once to my embarrassment. I was making a routine position report to a ground station when my flight engineer, not noticing that we were on the air, told me that he was going to the laboratory using informal language, of course. The ground station operator must have failed to bring his brain with him to the airport that day. He reported he reported us to the fall paw and in so doing identified the flight by number. Fortunately, there were no further developments. Although this narrative deals principally with radio communications by pilots, I think an occurrence, uh, an occurrence in which the star performer was a radio operator at our Houston-based named Ruthie and deserves to be included. I was flying a trip from New York to San Antonio with uh, a Houston stop. At Beaumont, we checked in with Houston. 
Ruthie was on duty. She gave us the weather, which was ceiling 300 feet, visibility unlimited, wind southwest at 16 miles per hour. We were stymied. The only way to get in was on the ILS, but not with that kind of a tailwind and a 300-foot ceiling. It was below minimum, circling minimums. I told Ruthie that we would overfly and proceed to San Antonio then. As an afterthought, I said, but let us know if the wind gets down to six miles per hour or less. If it does, we can come in. I hung my headphones on the hook with no expectation of being able to land at Houston. A few minutes later, a short, a short came, a shout came out of my headphones, which were still on, on the hook. Hey, I've got six miles. Ruthie had construed my conversation as a request for a special weather observation to legalize the weather. We landed at Houston on the ILS. On final approach, the tower operator gave us the current weather, loud and clear, except the wind velocity, which was garbled. A delightful garble. Actually, the landing was no problem. We used the entire runway, but without abnormal braking or body English. Fortunately, we had an L749 Constellation that trip. I would not have attempted to land in an L1049. Our Houston passengers never knew how fortunate they were that Ruthie had taken the bull by the horns. She did a good day's work for the company on that flight. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. When think about using anybody else, I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. For Harry Lindquist and myself, thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you will come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline. Stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8 p.m. scheduled radio show, don't worry, as it will be in the active file on the Internet in the archive at blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, Captain Eddie. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest broadcast. Since this is our eighth broadcast and each episode usually has seven to eight stories, you will have some great memories to catch up on if you are a first-time listener. We hope to turn you into a regular listener with these fascinating Eastern stories. Now, if you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you would like to share with others and tell your part of the Eastern memories, why not send it to us? Our email is eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's eneil, N-E-A-L-H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. We'll record it and give you the credit on the air. 
Now, until next week, we'll sign off with the familiar theme music of our beloved airline, Eastern Airlines. Good night to the Eastern family and friends.